0: bow our heads of pray. God, I don't know the different reasons why people are here this morning. I hope they're coming to worship you. I also don't know reasons or circumstances that people are bringing into this room this morning. And for some, it may feel like everything is just washing out to sea, that the shore is just giving away. And I pray that we would be reminded that you are steady, you are unchanging, you are sovereign, you are good, and that everything is under your control. And if we stand there on that steady rock, we'll find that your love doesn't change. You are holding fast to us, even as we're holding on to you. And so I pray this morning that you you would guide our thoughts in that direction uh, so that we would leave here encouraged by how strong you are and the purposes that you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. Lord willing, today and the next time we're in 1 Peter, we will have concluded this amazing little book. And I don't know about you, but it's it's a short book. But it has been packed full of wonderful truth, especially as we think about persecution. And that's why Peter wrote this book. Before I start in the text, I want to ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand uh, if this is you. How many of you remember the last words spoken to you by someone who you loved who later passed away? How many of you remember the last words that they said to you. It's very common and often the last words that someone spoke to us just kind of echo in our minds because it was something hopefully of importance. Often it was something of encouragement or inspiration. And I think that that's kind of how Peter wrote these last few verses here in First Peter chapter 5. He's gone through this entire letter where he has laid out what it means to be loved by Christ, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, who we are, our identity in Christ. And then he's gone through all of these applications of how we live that out, especially in light of persecution that comes. And and now when he gets to the end of this letter, he kind of wraps it all up. He ties together these loose ends and he does it in a note of encouragement. And he, he really reminds his readers here of everything that they have In Christ to stand in the face of of the enemy and so as we walk through this conclusion in two different parts part one is today part two uh, will be the next time I hope that you leave feeling encouraged by what Peter wraps up and that no matter what comes your way that through the person of Jesus Christ you have what it takes to bring glory to God regardless of the circumstances. Okay, that's what I want you to leave with this morning. So follow along. I want to read 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 9. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We'll stop there for this morning. There are different ways that you can outline the end of Peter's book, but I took this in three kind of easy points, and if you have your message notes, the, the three points I think are easy to follow, and I hope you'll find them here in the text. Are these: Stay humble, keep trusting, and stand firm. Stay humble, or be humble, uh, keep trusting, and stand firm. So let's start with the first one. Stand, or or stay humble. Look at verse 5. He says, likewise, and we'll come back to that in a second. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you know that the first part of 1 Peter 5, Peter speaks to the elders of the church, the, the church leaders, Uh, And he directs the elders how to lead, and he goes through some of the unique temptations that leaders of a church face. And the very last one that Peter talked about, that last unique temptation, is church leaders have a temptation toward being power-hungry. It's easy to abuse the power that God has invested in church leadership, and so Peter directs the elders of the church, don't. Abuse your power, but instead lead by example. Lead the flock by example. Follow Jesus, lead the flock. Don't domineer them, don't uh, lord it over them, uh, but lead them by example. So now when you get to verse 5, Peter turns his attention to those who are under the authority of those elders, of, of that church leadership. And he speaks to them specifically. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You who are younger. Does he mean younger in age? Is he talking about being younger in the faith? uh, Being younger in maturity? What kind of younger is he describing there? I think it's perhaps a combination of, of all of those as he addresses those under church leadership. And let's face it. Uh, Younger people, at least younger people in age, generally are those who would most often need a reminder to be submissive to authority over over them. Because they're often those that are most likely to be independent-minded and often maybe even rebellious against authorities over them. And so he's speaking to the younger in the church, but also recognize that if he's addressing the younger, he's assuming that the older have already figured it out. Right, so it it it, begins, it ends up applying to everyone. So those who are younger be subject to the church leaders who are in authority over you. Put yourself under their authority. Obey them. Follow their lead. This doesn't mean that you follow the lead of elders no matter what they say. No, no, no. They, they're not called to abuse their authority. They still have to live. Under the authority of Jesus Christ, right? Peter's saying, rather, you come along and you as a flock do not have the right to sabotage elder leadership or to speak slanderously of those in authority over you or to cast aside church authority simply because you don't like them. Commentator David Walls adds these thoughts. He says, when church members do those things, when church members buck against uh, church leadership, he says, they allow Satan to use them as his tool for division and destruction in the church. The message here is clear. He says, when pastor shepherds lead their congregations with responsible and godly leadership, and members of the flock resist this leadership, those members are in disobedience to the Lord and have opened the door for Satan. We don't want to do that, right? That is a frightening proposal where the flock resists the initiative of of godly leadership and complains about, pastors and leadership and, and sabotages the direction of the church when that happens and churches that experience this inevitably have chaos they have division, they have infighting and those churches eventually will implode so what are we to do instead well that's what Peter finishes out at the end of the verse, look what he says at the end of verse 5, he says here's what you should do clothe yourselves all of you That includes church leaders, too. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I can't read Peter's mind, but I I wonder as he wrote those verses about being humble, and he even uses the words, clothe yourselves. If he thought back to the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified, where Jesus himself knelt down and clothed himself with humility and put, wrapped a towel around himself and did that which none of them wanted to do. Or Jesus knelt down and he washed the feet of his disciples, those dirty feet, as they came into the upper room. Jesus, by example, shows us what humility looks like. It was a demonstration of love and humility. Peter says, that's what we're to be like to one another. In humility, we prefer someone over ourselves. In humility, we do that which others don't want to do. If I were to ask you this morning, what is your definition of humility? How would you answer that question? What is your definition of humility? I think most people would come along and say, well, humility is putting myself down and putting others up. And almost like this idea of self-depreciation, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not very good at that. No, I mean, you're, you're so much better than, than me in that. Like, kind of, I'm always doing this. I'm not sure that's a, actually an accurate definition of Humility. Charles Spurgeon defined humility like this. He said, humility is making a right estimate of one's self. A right estimate of one's self. And here's why I like that definition, because I think it includes two important things. Humility is first being aware of your personal strengths and being thankful to God for them. And humility is also being aware of your personal weaknesses and being dependent upon God to help you in those. You see how both of those are God-centered? When I do well, when I'm gifted at something and I excel, I'm thankful to God. And when I'm I'm not real great at something and I need other people around me, I'm dependent on God to surround me with people that can help me. Do you see how both of those, they're not self-focused, they're God-focused. That's true humility, right? There are people in this church way smarter than me. There are people in this church far more creative than me. I have certain gifts, but I need other people around me with those other gifts or this thing wouldn't work, right? Humility is exercising my gifts as God has given them to me, but then realizing I need others around me. It causes a dependence upon one another. So humility says, thank you and thank you. Thank you, thank you, right? That is humility. Why does God oppose the proud but give grace to the humble? Because the humble trust in God and God delights in being trusted. The humble trust in God and God delights in being trusted. Which leads, Peter, to his second thought in this passage. He says, keep trusting. Keep trusting. These next two verses, I'm just going to tell you up front, these next two verses have been some of the most convicting yet comforting verses in my life. I would encourage you to memorize these next two verses. If you haven't done it, memorize these two. They're that good. Look at verses six and seven. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, how many of you this morning have heard verse seven over and over and over in your life? If you're like me, I memorized that in the old King James. Cast all your cares on him, for he careth for you, right? That, that's how I learned that verse. Cast all your cares on him, for he careth for you. And we know that verse, and we love that verse, but I think what we often forget is verse 7 is actually tied to verse 6. It's the same sentence. And I want you to notice something about the connection between verse 7, casting your cares on him, With verse 6, the connection, look at this, the connection is between anxiety in verse 7 and humility in verse 6. The connection is actually between anxiety in verse 7 and pride in verse 6. Now think about this for a second. If I'm told to humble myself, In verse 6, that must mean that there's an element of pride going on. I don't have to humble myself unless I'm dealing with pride, right? So something about pride in verse 6 has been called upon to be humbled so that my anxieties are dealt with in verse 7. Now, let's get this straight. What are you saying, Sean? Are you saying that my anxieties in life and maybe you have some, I do, my anxieties in life, at least in part, may be present because I'm proud? Yes, that's exactly what Peter's saying. Let me see if I can show this to you. My anxieties... Those things that I worry about, those things that get me all up in arms, those things that cause my mind to go like this, expose the fact that I'm convinced that I must solve this problem in my own strength. My anxieties expose pride in my life that I think I have to handle these things in my own strength. So how do I humble myself? Well, verse 7, he says, I humble myself by casting my anxieties on him. Interesting. Interesting. That word anxieties there uh, is a Greek word that means to have a divided mind. Think about the things that make you most anxious in life. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family or some relationship that you have. Think about the things that make you most anxious in your mind. Okay, Well, me even telling you to go there may create a divided mind. Because you know what happens when anxieties show up? Your mind starts going like this. A million different directions. Your mind just starts running up. It's called having a divided mind. Your, your mind just starts going everywhere. Why? Because your mind starts racing. If I could only fix this, it, this problem would be solved. If I could only fig- figure out this, it would be better. If I could only get this person over here to do this, everything would... See what happens? In anxiety and worrisome situations, your mind begins to divide. I've shared this with some people here before, um, but it always stands out to me in my mind. When I committed to come here to Bethel to be your pastor, uh, something like close to eight years ago now, uh, I was so excited and I was pumped up and and I I still am, but I was really excited uh, to come here. And I remember one night laying in bed and I was starting to think about uh, the cost of living in Sarasota, Florida versus the cost of living in Southern Indiana. And it's very different. And my mind began to divide. And I started to worry, what have I committed myself to? Our family is going to get down there and we're going to starve to death. I don't know how this is all going to work. How are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for that? This or, and I, my mind just started going like this. Couldn't sleep. And it was the truth of these verses matched with truths out of Matthew 6, which I, I got up in the middle of the night and read. And as I began to think about this idea of anxious mind and and divided mind and casting my cares on God, it was as though God spoke directly to me through his word. It wasn't audible, but it was clear as God said, Sean, I have taken care of you for 40 years. Why do you think I would quit now? And it was the truth of casting my anxiety, my care on him that allowed me to go to sleep that night and just peacefully, I remember repenting. I was broken, repenting. God, you are right. I am so proud, thinking that I can handle all of this on my own, but I'm not even trusting you in this situation. And when I repented and I threw my cares on him, that, that casting your cares, that means to heave it off your shoulders and heave it onto the broad shoulders of God that my mind rested. And we moved to Florida and he has been faithful ever since. We're not rich and that's not the goal anyway. But he has been faithful to us. Just like he promised he would be. Here's two good reasons why God has been faithful to us. Peter gives them to us in these two verses. Two reasons. He says because God has a mighty hand and he cares for you. He has a mighty hand and he cares for you. In the Old Testament, the story that was often pointed to, that demonstrated the mighty hand of God, was God's deliverance of the children of Israel out from slavery in in Egypt. That, That story is used over and over and over at the Old Testament to point to the faithfulness and the mighty hand of God. And if you don't know the story, Israelites were brought out of Egypt, Headed across the, the land, and they get to the Red Sea, and God, by his mighty hand, parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites, something like two plus million of them, cross the Red Sea on dry land, and here come the Egyptians, pursuing them, ready to kill them, and right at the last moment, God allows that sea to collapse in on itself, drowning out the Egyptians. in in rescuing saving the uh, the israelites and they had already plundered them on their way out of egypt that story demonstrates the mighty hand of god and peter comes back to us and he says don't forget your god has a mighty hand and in case you are here this morning and you're anxious about something that god who parted the red sea he's your god too And if he can rescue two plus million people from an army pursuing them, I'm pretty sure he can take care of your electric bill. And I'm pretty sure he can take care of a hurricane that might be coming. I'm pretty sure he can sustain your faith if you're facing some illness right now. He has a mighty hand. And he cares for you. Did you know that the God of the Christian faith is the only God that cares for his people? Every other God of every other religion, it's your job to appease him and he's not very happy with you. He's angry about something, always mad about something. You got to go out and do all these things to make him happy. Our God cares for you. What a promise. Isn't that wonderful? Psalm 55:22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now, these uh, verses don't absolve us of responsibility. Can God take care of my electric bill? Yeah, he can, but he still calls me to go to work. Can God take care of my house during a hurricane? Yes, but he still calls me to go out out and pick up the sticks so they don't blow through my window, right? Right? I still have responsibility. I'm still called to go, but I can trust God with all of those things outside of my control. I don't have to get anxious about those things because God has a mighty hand and he cares for me. I want you to think back. What in your life causes you the most anxiety? Could it be that God through your worries and anxieties, is trying to expose a spirit of pride that's present in your life, and he's calling on you to humble yourself. Cast that on me. Cast it on me. If that's you and you're you're proud, repent. Trust. Keep trusting. I can't handle this situation on my own, but I know the one who can. That's Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what does God promise to do at the end of verse 6 when you humble yourselves? He says, I will exalt you. That might come soon. That might not come until you die and meet him face to face. But he will exalt you in your humility, right? Try him on it. Try him. Peter writes these verses out of experience. Don't forget, Peter's a real guy too. He's gone through some stuff in his life. I love the story that's told about him in Acts chapter 12. Watch this, follow along. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. It was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Catch this next verse. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, this is the night before Peter knew he was going to die, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, Bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. How in the world could he have been sleeping? Friend, if that was you, me and you, well, at least if it was me, and I knew the next day I was going to die by the sword off with my head, there's no way I would have been sleeping. I, I, I would have been up all night long. I would have been trying to think, of, how do I get out of this? I, I, I My heart likely would have been all over the place. Peter was sleeping. Why? Because he humbled himself and he trusted God. And I suspect that he thought, well, I guess my exaltation will come when I meet Jesus face-to-face tomorrow. I'm humbled today. I'm going to die. But I guess my exaltation will come later. So he slept peacefully. Now, if you know the end of the story, uh, God miraculously opens the gates of the prison. Peter thinks he's having a dream. He walks out through the gates. Everything's just wide open. He he, he walks out. Peter had no idea that his exaltation was coming the next day, but it was going to make God look great in this miraculous rescue. So Peter reminds us here God can do that for you too. He is looking out for you too. And especially if you remember the main point of this letter, especially if you are facing persecution for your faith, he is equipping you to face that persecution with a humble, non-anxious mind because God's got your back. So when persecution comes, Peter says, I know what it's like. Don't panic, don't worry, don't get anxious. Cast those anxieties on God because he cares for you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? So Peter has said, be humble, keep trusting. And finally, he says, stand firm. Look at verses eight and nine again. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I like how he starts it off. He says, be sober-minded, be, uh, be watchful. In other words, be aware of what's happening around you. Don't just be oblivious. Be aware of what's happening around you because your adversary, the devil, isn't giving up. He's not going to stop until Jesus returns. And he's prowling around and your demise is his constant goal. He is your adversary. That's a very technical word actually in the Greek. That word adversary is a legal term that meant when you would go to court with someone, the one bringing charges against you was your adversary. Okay, That's, That's how the word was used in contemporary language. If you were sued by someone, that is your Adversary, and so Peter adopts that word and applies it to Satan and believers, because Satan loves to show up in front of God and accuse you of wrongdoing. Satan shows up in front of God and says, "God, have really have you seen Pastor Sean? Do you know what he's really like? Have you watched him lately?" Do you see how how he's acted? Do you see how he's sinned against you again? And you call him one of your children? You need to punish him. And right there, next to God's throne, sits sits Jesus. And Jesus says, "Uh, hold up. I've already been punished for that sin, God. I've already taken that punishment. You don't need to punish Pastor Sean again. I've already absorbed that in myself on the cross. It's under the blood of of myself. And Satan has to leave. And you know what he does when he leaves? He comes straight back down like a roaring lion coming after me. Coming after you. And he roars with the roar of persecution because you see, if he can't win there, then he's going to come after you and see if he can get you to abandon Jesus Christ. So he's going to try to do, he's going to try to intimidate you with the hope that you will abandon the faith. And if he can get you to abandon the faith, then he will absolutely devour you. And you will join him one day in his punishment forever in a place called hell. They came after Paul. Paul told us about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at this. He said, Alexander the copper He named names, man. He was brave. Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But notice what Paul says next. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. Hear this. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Satan was roaring. He was coming after Paul. Paul was rescued. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How do you resist the devil when he comes howling at you in the face of persecution? Look what Peter says in our text. He says, here's how you resist the devil. You stand firm in your faith. You stand firm in your faith. You don't have to do all kinds of gymnastics. You don't have to go all Rambo on Satan and show him who's boss. All you have to do is continue trusting God. Because if Satan comes at you in the face of persecution and he sees that you aren't going to move from your faith of Jesus Christ, he has nothing left. And he goes skimpering away in defeat. Let me remind you of something. While Satan, in these verses, is called a roaring lion, there is another lion that appears in our Bible. It comes in Revelation chapter 5. Look at this. It says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That's Jesus, by the way, in case you weren't sure. He has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and his seven seals, And then it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. How did this lion, the lion of Judah, the root of David, how did he conquer by becoming a lamb slain for the sins of the world? Satan has no authority. He has no ammunition because everything that he brings against us has already been paid by Jesus on the cross. And when you and I have Jesus in our heart, Through faith and repentance, we have his power within us to stand when persecution comes. And when it comes and we stand tall, when the roaring lion of 1 Peter 5 shows up, the lion of Judah roars louder. (laughs) Satan's got nothing. There is no chance when the lion of Judah roars of his authority over Satan he's defeated and he knows it and friend that power is yours that power is yours if you're a believer this morning that that power of Jesus Christ is yours you are not alone when you face trouble in this world You are not alone when the anxieties of the world come upon you. You are not alone when your persecutors stand up because the ultimate source of victory, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, is yours. So stay humble. Keep trusting. Stand firm. Let's stand for prayer. God, what an awesome encouragement. What a powerful truth to know that when it feels like our world is rushing out to the sea that it's all falling apart, remind us of your mighty hand. Remind us that you care for us. Remind us of the great victory in Jesus Christ one on the cross, the lamb who was slain, the mighty lion of Judah, so that when the trouble comes, when the persecution comes, we stand in humility, casting all our cares on you. Father, take away all the pride. We repent of places where we try to control it ourselves and we we try to figure it all out ourselves. Help us to repent of that. By faith, believe that you will do what you said you will do. Father, encourage our hearts this morning. I pray in Jesus' name.